Now, Isaiah, um, where we began, um, means salvation is Yah. Um, and Isaiah as a prophecy is the, the seedbed of the Gospels. Um, not, not only is it the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, um, with nearly 70 separate quotations, it has more to say about Christ and his return than any other. Um, in Isaiah 9, uh, we see the light of the gospel um, illuminating the way of the Gentiles. Beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations, we read the people that walked in darkness um, have seen a great light. Um, in Isaiah 61, the gospel is preached. Uh, the spirit of um, the Lord Adonai Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh hath anointed me to preach good tidings. That's the gospel unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. Binding up the brokenhearted mean, means to bandage. It makes reference to the process of healing. Something um, we see clearly in Isaiah chapter one. If you just turn there um, uh, to start with, please. Um, we'll just have a look at this in Isaiah chapter one, which is quite explicit about the nation and their um, spiritual health. Um, verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 1. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Will ye revolt more and more? The whole head is sick from the whole and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, um, neither mollified with ointment. So we have a picture of the nation uh, as one of being in serious illness. Um, and it, it's as a metaphor for our sin-stricken nature, um, bound up, uh, that word we read in, in Isaiah 1, um, and um, uh, we, we read it earlier as well. It, it's, it's the same word in Isaiah 61, um, and it's a natural process for us to bind our injuries, um, to aid the process of healing. Um, it's almost an automatic thing. Um, and, and, and these metaphors help us um, to understand um, our need for healing. Um, and it's illustrated before us in God's people, Israel. The constant need to rebind the injury. That's the simple meaning of the word religion. It's brought before our eyes and our ears for us to see and hear. Our only means of healing is through the sinlessness of the anointed son of God, who whilst being made in the form of Adam, triumphed over sin and offers us a healing process um, following 
his example. And we shall, of course, on this first day of the week, remember this later in our memorials. Now, healing is the dominant theme of the Gospels and the work of Christ in both providing Jews and Gentiles with hope. Jesus means Yah is salvation, and it's the mirror image of Isaiah. Salvation is Yah. And so we find much of what is said in Isaiah is mirrored in the Gospels. And the Gospel of Mark is no exception. In fact, it's the primary example we're going to use today. Um, now we know Mark is the Gospel of the servant, and it reveals the tireless work of the anointed Son of God in providing the means um, whereby we may be healed. Now, this is repeatedly seen in the form of miracles of the healing of the deaf, the dumb, the blind and the lame. Um, and the picture in scope is that Israel were all of these things, but especially deaf and blind, unable and unwilling to see the light that shone before them, thereby turning aside the healing that Jesus was illuminating before them. Um, and as we saw repeatedly last night, um, despite Jesus' continue, continued rejection by everyone, he was showing salvation to all by treading a path to overcome sin, a path in which um, Israel and we need to follow. Now, one of the continuing frustrations uh, Jesus, Jesus found in his ministry uh, was a prominent feature of uh, the ways of the Jews, and in particular, the Jewish leadership. And that was the elevation of tradition, things that had been handed down. Um, the Pharisees said, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Um, and these things made the law, which was meant to bring them to Christ, of none effect. Um, so says Matthew 15, verse 6, and we'll go there shortly. Um, this is this problem is no more pronounced than in Mark chapter 7. We're going to go and have a look now at Mark um, 7 and 8. Um, and we're going to also look at the context in Mark chapter 6. Um, and we'll just try and piece together the events um, uh, that are recorded for us. We'll also have a quick look at Matthew um, before we then come back um, to Isaiah. So the context of Mark 7 and 8 begins in chapter 6, um, and chapter 6 covers a fairly lengthy period of time. In verse 7 of Mark 6, Jesus sends the, the disciples out to preach, and then we have the very sad record of the merciless beheading of um, John by Herod. Um, in verse 31, um, in, in keeping with the, the servant theme of Mark, um, we see they had no leisure time, um, no, no leisure, not so much as to even eat. Um, they were working so hard. Um, they had, of course, put their hands to the plough and did not look back. Now, Jesus and the disciples regroup in chapter, in verse 32 of this chapter. Now, they get back together and Jesus sought a private place in the desert, but um, it was not possible as the multitude followed. 
And Jesus then said they were as sheep without a shepherd, quoting the words of Zechariah 11. Jesus then proceeds to feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, taking up the 12 um, baskets of fragments afterwards. And we will suggest here then that this feeding was primarily to the Jews, showing the Jews the way. And it's possible that the numbers five and 12 are Jewish numbers with the five books of Moses and the 12 sons of, of, of Israel. We think then that Jesus is showing the Jews where, where they were going wrong, that he was the true bread. So after this incident, um, we see the disciples enter into a ship um, across the lake, meeting with a storm um, and Jesus watching them from the distance from a high place joins them in the fourth watch completing a beautiful cameo of the trials and tribulations of life tossed upon those rough waves trying to live the truth enduring a storm and that storm will only be calmed when christ returns which will come in in the fourth watch of the age um, i.e the, the end of a um, a period of, of dark Gentile night when, when the sun rises and the dawn appears. So a beautiful picture is presented, which we as the readers can see and perceive. So Jesus then in, in Mark 7 continues to engage with the leaders of the nation. And is any wonder he groaned and he sighed. Look at these words in verse 1 of Mark 7. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. Um, when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold. These are those traditions, as the washing of cups and pots, um, brazen vessels, um, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked that question, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? Now Jesus' response here is to quote Isaiah 29 and verse 13, which we read a moment ago. And we're gonna, we'll look at that in, in a little more detail when we get back to um, Isaiah 29. But he says in verse 6, he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, that word for teaching in Isaiah 29, um, it, it reads as the word taught um, in Isaiah, and it actually means to goad. Um, and so there's some aggression here in the laying upon the people, the commandments, the robotic commandments of men um, with the external appearance of righteousness. But in their heart, they were far from him. Now, Jesus' reference to this section of Isaiah in, in chapter 29 of Isaiah is, is no coincidence. And, and it, as we shall see, it provides the crucial backdrop for understanding Mark 7 and Mark 8. Because from this, we have many clues as to how Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and why. And why he does what he does. Perhaps 
this is a clue to where his mind is when he is um, engaging with the scribes and the Pharisees um, here in, in Mark 7. Um, so Jesus taught and fed the people and Im immediately um, he, he has been reminded of the blindness, the deafness, the lameness of the Pharisees. And in fact, this appears to signal a significant change, a turning point in his ministry, and possibly a, a, a switch um, from Jew to Gentile, uh, we, we can perceive in, in a moment. In the section from verse 8 down to verse 23, Jesus explains why the traditions of the Pharisees have basically made the law of non-effect. Um, they've twisted their understanding to suit themselves, um, providing uh, the basis by which they might ignore the critical principles revealed therein. Jesus condemns them and puts into clear perspective, having clean hands externally is pointless um, if you can't gain salvation by um, as you can't gain salvation, sorry, by washing off, off literal dirt off your hands. You don't become clean as a person by washing the dirt off. The real dirt is in the heart of man, which is deceitful and desperately wicked. Um, it's the things that come from the heart, and by the heart we mean the mind, the thinking powers of man. They're the things that need to be cleansed by doing God's work. So however well-meaning their traditions were and however, pra however practically um, efficient they were, uh, they were missing the point by laying the burden of them upon man. Um, and then by so doing, missing the point of the message of Christ. So in verse 24 of uh, chapter 7, we see that Jesus takes himself away from the Jews and goes to the Gentiles um leaving israel um and and going up to the coast of lebanon and in particular to tyre and to sidon where he tries to conceal himself um at the end of verse 24 but he could not be hid um and and here a gentile woman a, a syro phoenician um came to him in verses 25 and 26 and begged for his healing um, Jesus is impressed by her faith, uh, which is recorded in, in the parallel record in Matthew 15, um, and he heals her daughter. We'll go to Matthew um, in a moment. Now, after this incident, then, in, in Lebanon, um, Jesus travels back to Galilee, and in particular to Decapolis, um, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations, we read um, I quoted that from Isaiah 9. Decapolis is Greek for 10 cities, a region of 10 Gentile cities. And here Jesus has compassion on the Gentiles and heals them. Um, verse 32 of chapter 7. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto them, Ephatha, 
that is be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain and he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. So clearly there was a period of rejoicing here amongst the people as the word spread um, about Jesus's healing power. We come then into Mark 8. Um, and in the first nine verses of Mark 8, Jesus has more compassion on the people. It's interesting. It's the same group that have come with him. Um, and it would therefore suggest that this is a group of Gentiles. And it's interesting in verse two, um, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days. Um, and interesting, every time we read of three days, we think of the sacrifice of Christ. And it is um, through this um, that Jesus is now having compassion upon them and through that sacrifice um, that we as Gentiles have a hope to share um, in, in, in the, the hope of Israel. So um, believing then here that this is a group of largely Gentiles, we see him uh, now turn his attention to feeding them um, and feeds a slightly lesser multitude of 4,000 with seven baskets of fragments taken up. And so the numbers here, four and seven, show us a difference to the five and the twelve of chapter six, um, perhaps emphasising uh, the difference in the group of people. Um, we think then maybe the five thousand were, were the Jews and the four thousand here were the Gentiles. But they all had the same message that Jesus was the bread that came down from heaven um, uh, upon which they should feed. Um, and, and of, of course, seven here maybe is, is a, a picture of completion, uh, the complete purpose um, of God um, through the gospel, uh, which then overreaches just the Jews under the law and incorporates the Gentiles as well. So after this feeding, Jesus enters a ship. Um, and every time we see him on a ship or the disciples, we think about the difficulties and troubles of life um, um, sailing upon that ocean in the ecclesial vessel. But this time he he travels over to Dalmanutha and here the Jews question him about a sign. Uh, verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek after after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Um, and he left them, entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. Now in Matthew, um, he does give them a brief sign, which is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Um, again, we'll, we'll come to Matthew um, in a moment. Um, so they return to the water. Um, and, and Jesus, frustrated by the Pharisees again, warns the disciples about the leaven um, of the Pharisees. Um, and, and by that, he meant, of course, their doctrine um, and their teaching, uh, which would corrupt them. 
um, the disciples in verse 16 of this chapter then on, on the vessel with Christ reasoned among themselves saying, oh, it's because uh, we have no bread, which is why he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And when Jesus knew it, he said to them, why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have, have ye your heart yet hardened? Having ears, see ye not. Having ears, hear ye not. This was the problem of the Pharisees. And he's now um, confronting the disciples with this, this. So you're not listening and understanding what I'm saying. When I break the five loaves among the 5,000 and how many baskets full he took up, they said to him, 12. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets were, were uh, full of fragments took you up? And they said, seven. And so how is it that you do not understand? So there was a real teaching in the feeding of these multitudes. So let's just enhance our understanding of this little passage um, in the life of, of Christ, going to Matthew chapter 16, which is the parallel record. Um, and obviously, Matthew presents us the king um, rather than the servant. So there are some slight differences and nuances, but largely this is the, the same record um, of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, verse 6 of Matthew 16, um, Jesus said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And, and then you see the same response in, in the disciples. It's because we have no bread. So he, he goes through the same pattern that we've just read in Mark um, in down to verse 12. And then the final section of this dialogue happens when they arrive at the coast of Caesarea Philippi Jesus asked them whom the people say that he is and whom whom they believe he is which leads Peter on to the confession that Jesus is the Christ um, um, in verse 16 thou art the anointed the son of the living God um, and Jesus goes on to to, to say on, on, on Peter's confession, he, he goes on to say that this declaration um, of Christ being the anointed um, is the foundation stone upon which the ecclesia would be built. Verses 16 to 18, upon this rock, upon this foundation stone, um, the ecclesia would be built. So after this, then Jesus talks to the disciples um, of his suffering to come, for, for that's the essential next part of him becoming the chief cornerstone. Um, and Peter tries to resist him, and he's then suitably corrected. Um, and, and we say that, that this confession of, of Peter um, is, is recorded in Mark 8, but the, the, the foundation stone um, and the preeminence of Christ in the ecclesia, the ecclesial building is not recorded in Mark. Um, this is one of those subtle differences where the preeminence of Christ um, is reserved for the kingly record um, of Matthew. Now, one more healing step um, for the servant. If, if we go back to Mark chapter eight, and um, we have this extraordinary miracle of healing the blind man, perhaps the most extraordinary miracle that Jesus performed. So 
just want to um, say and from Matthew, we've picked up this foundation stone, which we're going to refer to when we get to um, Isaiah, um, because it, it completes the record of this section, um, trying to understand um, what, what was happening in the life of Jesus. So we come then to verse 22 of Mark um, chapter 8. He cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the, out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up and he was restored and saw every man clearly. Now, helping the blind is not something Jesus has had any problem with up to now. Why, why was Jesus unable to cure the blindness of this man in one step? Or, or was this by design? Why, why did this miracle happened in two stages. The man was first cured in part and he saw men as trees walking, a kind of opaque vision. He could see something, but not clearly. And then that was followed up by absolute clarity. Should the law have given them an outline and the presence of Christ um, given them absolute clarity? Well, in order to understand this record and see what is influencing Christ here in Mark 7 and 8, we need to go back to the chapter we had read in Isaiah 29, a section which deals with the woe judgments upon Israel and Judah and their failure um, to see that the law was leading them to Christ. And also we, we see the hypocrisy of their tradition. Um, which led to their punishment and overthrow, which resulted in the opening of the door to the Gentiles. Galilee of the nations. Matthew records in chapter 4, verse 15, the people which sat in darkness have seen a great light. So let's go to Isaiah um, and we'll start in chapter 28. Now, this section of the prophecy of Isaiah um, spans from chapter 13 to chapter 39 um, and revolves around the apocalyptic vision um, of chapters 24 uh, to 27 um, and that's of Israel scattered and regathered from destruction to their crowning at the head of the nations and, and we remind ourselves whenever we we read of the punishments and judgments upon Israel there is always reference to their hope of regathering and restoration just quickly turn back to isaiah 25 and verse 6 and, and this is the pinnacle of this section of chapters um, and in this mountain shall yahweh of armies make unto all people a feast of fat things a feast of wines on the lees of fat things full of marrow of wines on the lees well refined and he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people he, shall he take away 
from off all the earth, for Yahweh hath spoken it. So this pinnacle of restoration and re-establishment of Israel at the head of the nations. Now, in this structure that, that circles this chapter, uh, we have before it the burdens upon the nations, Damascus and Egypt, the wilderness of the sea, Duma, Arabia, the Valley of Vision and Tyre. And after this chapter, uh, we have um, um, Israel regathered and, and scattered and regathered. Um, in chapters 28 to 31, we have more woes spoken against God's people. Um, and if we look at the uh, beginning of chapter 28, uh, we see the leaders of Israel who had the responsibility of guiding the people depicted as hopelessly inebriated, drunken by the wine of their own doctrine. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with the hand, the crown of the pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden under feet. Um, and, and this was a, a dreadful um, judgment coming upon the people. And we can think of the way in which the Assyrian flooded into the land in the days of Isaiah and, and Hezekiah, filling the land right up to the neck, as it were. So judgment was coming upon them. Um, we have then a continuing picture of of disgusting practice in verse eight. We've got tables covered in vomit, um, people stumbling in the judgment. The priest and the prophet erred through strong drink in verse eight. And then in verse nine, um, we see uh, they were actually um, as, as if they were still weaning on the breast. Um, they, they were uneducated um, children, uh, babies, in fact, in, in their understanding. But they thought they were untouchable. Verse 15, um, ye have said, we've made a covenant with death and with hell. We are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we've made, our, we've made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Here we have the stone. Therefore, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. So in response to the crooked ways um, of his people, Yahweh was to lay a sure foundation stone to show them how to be straight. This was the stone upon which Jesus said to Peter he would build his ecclesia in Matthew 15. Judgment laid to the line in verse 17 and righteousness to the plummets. And those builders amongst us, should there be any, um, will know better than I um, how to build straight you need a guide. And the stone, this chief cornerstone, sets the line of the building. And that was the start of the process. But the Jews didn't like it, of course. Uh, they protected their own perverse 
activity and their traditions which blinded them and, and their crooked ways be, and, and, and this became their stone of stumbling and the rock of offence. And they would get caught because in verse 20, the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it and the covering narrower than that he can wrap himself in it. Their way of life missed the mark. Their bed, as it were, was too short, didn't fit them. It wasn't fit for purpose. And when they needed the protection of the covers, they wouldn't even go round them. They were exposed. So in verse 24, we see the parable of the ploughman um, alluding again to Yahweh rising up in judgment like a skilled ploughman. He knows exactly how much ground to break up and he knows when to sow and how to treat the seed. Jesus, of course, is the bread corn that was bruised in verse 28. Jesus is the bread of life. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. He is the bruised corn. And this is laying the foundation for what happens next in Mark 7 and 8. This is where the mind of Jesus is at this time. 29 then, chapter 29 and verse 1. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mountain. I will raise forts against thee. Terrible period of judgment that was coming upon them. Um possibly not just in these days, but thinking ahead also to Rome um, in AD 70, um, which would possibly have, have been also in the mind of Christ at this time. Um, so there's a, a continuous problem here um, and the monotonous, meaningless process that their worship had become. So these judgments are seen in Ariel, means the lion of God. Um, but it's also a word used to describe the hearth of the altar in Ezekiel 43, verse 15. That's, that's referenced in the margin. A place of burning and a place of judgment. Jerusalem was going to be made the, the altar hearth and, and the very people of the city were going to be the sacrifice upon it when God poured out his judgments upon the wicked people of the city because their service to him was an abomination. But despite the judgments outpoured um, and, and, and the victory of their enemies, there's no lasting satisfaction uh, to their enemies. Their triumph is transient and limited. Um, we read in this chapter, um, like a hung hungry man dreaming that he's eating and having imaginary satisfaction, because when he wakes up, um, there's no food there at all and he's still hungry. Israel, on the other hand, in verse 9, um, appears to be drunk, but this time not with wine. Stay yourselves and wonder, cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. Why then? For Yahweh hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, uh, the seers hath he covered. 
the vision, the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And so a spirit of deep sleep and slumber had been placed upon their eyes. And the book that could reveal to them knowledge was sealed and even the learned could not hear or could not read. Paul quotes verse 10 in Romans um, and speaks of the Jews in terms of this spirit of slumber, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. Um, and, and all because they were so caught up with their own way and refused to listen and to hear. And as a result of their inability to see or understand, we come to verse 13, which was Jesus's response um, to uh, the scribes and the Pharisees about their traditions. Wherefore, uh, the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honour me, but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught or goaded by the precept of men. So they couldn't be further away um, from where they should have been. This indictment against the Jews um, is quoted both in Matthew 15 verse 7 and Mark 7 verse 6. And we made reference to it earlier. Speaking of the moment when the scribes and the Pharisees criticised the disciples for not washing their hands before eating, completely overlooking the fact that is that which cometh out of man that defileth him, not that which goeth in. And so they were in appearance trying to be godly, but on the inside they were in a completely different place. A huge exhortation for all of us, brethren and sisters, as we meet together not to appear to be doing the right thing, but to be convinced up here um, and, and to, to make, make a change in our lives. So this in verse 14 is described as a marvellous work. Okay, behold, I will proceed to do a marvellous work among this people, even a marvellous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. So there was going to be a great enlightenment that was coming, a marvellous work and a wonder. The blindness of disobedient Israel um, was going to, to turn into enlightenment for the Gentiles. And they were the ones that would listen. And Jesus illustrates this on more than one occasion. Another good example, if we have time, is John 9 and the healing of the blindness at the pool of Siloam. What we see then in verse 15. Woe to them that seek deep to hide their counsel from Yahweh. And their works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us and who knoweth us? 
Surely your, your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he hath made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he hath no understanding? Um, a piece of clay can't tell the potter you don't know what you're doing. Um, these were extraordinary things that the Jews had turned things upside down on their head. And so Jesus performs a marvelous work, a wonder in that he turns to the Gentiles. Verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while and Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in Yahweh and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And so the spirit through Isaiah directs us to look for five things. Signs of faith in Lebanon, hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek increase their joy and, and, and fifthly, the, the poor rejoicing. Is this not exactly what we have read in Mark chapter seven and eight? The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Jesus turning to Lebanon, to Tyre and Sidon, where he found faith. The meek woman increased her joy. She pleaded and persisted for the crumbs that fell from the master's table. And for this evidence of her faith, her daughter, her Gentile offspring was healed. So out of this place, we see Lebanon turned into a fruitful field. The poor also rejoiced at his healing power. This is truly wonderful. In fact, so wonderful, it's, it's beyond words for the anointed son of God was enacting Isaiah 29 right in front of their eyes. The deaf were made to, was made to hear in, in Mark 7 verse 32, just as the prophet had spoken of. Israel could not see this was them because they were the deaf. They could not hear the words he spoke, neither could they see the deeds that he did. But something yet more wonderful was to come. Chapter seven of Mark was about hearing. Um, Mark chapter eight was about seeing. And in verse 18 of, of Mark eight, we saw the seeing out of obscurity and out of darkness, a two stage process of restoring vision. I see men as trees walking. The man said, and his vision was there only in outline. His vision was obscure. Why? To fulfill the words of Isaiah 29 and verse 18. And here then is the two-stage miracle. Uh, nothing to do with Jesus' inability to heal in one step. A carefully designed miracle to reveal to those that were watching that this was the word of the Spirit coming to life in him, the restoration of sight 
out of obscurity and darkness, precisely as Isaiah had spoken. What a beautiful picture is presented to us, knitting together the ministry of Christ and the gospel as recorded in Isaiah. My dear brothers and sisters, may we be encouraged to open our eyes, to open our ears to, and, and to, to understanding of the scriptures and remembering that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles uh, be come in. At the end of this Isaiah chapter 29, we see there is hope. Verse 23, when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. So the Jews will will be there um, and, the, and the promises to Abraham will be fulfilled, notwithstanding the problems they endured. Um, and the difficulties they experienced and their stubbornness um, it has all brought about hope for the Gentiles. A marvellous work, a wonder, um, as we have seen. My dear brothers and sisters, this is the day of our opportunity to open our eyes and to hear with our ears. Thank you. <laughs>